most of you have read uh, at least a little of C.S. Lewis outside of the Chronicles of Narnia, I trust. And if you have, you've likely noticed uh, the remarkable skill he displays in parsing ideas, making distinctions, sorting down to assumptions. This was a skill he gained in his study of the classics. And then he further mastered it in his study of language and literature, parsing Greek and Latin grammar prepared him well and flowed nicely into parsing concepts, parsing cultural assumptions, when he then eventually turned his attention to Christian apologetics, which many of us have read. He was able to make fine distinctions that reveal to many people, and today continue to reveal to many people, faulty thinking that we have. So often, just precision of language, precision in thinking, could resolve conflicts and could open a person to some neglected truth that suddenly made much more sense. Today, almost 50 years after his death, that precision continues to bear fruit. And for my own thinking, no single text of Lewis's has proved more helpful just on a daily basis than the four loves. And this is a work in which he explores the English word love, which we use so flippantly, according to the, the four Greek terms for love, concepts that, that get collapsed, that get rolled into our single concept of love. By making these distinctions among the kinds of love, he helps us see ways that we confuse love or confuse the loves but also he shows the unique goodness of each one, each kind of love. And no less significantly, he identifies how each of those loves can become twisted, can actually become a snare. So when a person turns to one of the loves as worthy of worship in itself, it collapses under the weight that it wasn't intended to bear, wasn't designed to bear, so like a fallen angel becomes itself a false god. Now in this series of lectures over the last several years, I've been working through these four loves. If you've been visiting with us on these occasions, you've heard that. I've been considering how a clear understanding of them gives us help for life, help for relationships, help working through relationship challenges. And now, as we've come through these last two years and the cascading crises, I want to make the argument that these crises have revealed severe deficiencies in American Christianity, particularly in our love for God and our love for His people. And when I say our, I'm speaking nationally, American Christianity. A careful application of C.S. Lewis's theory of love in the four loves will help us sort through what's happened, sort through the deficiencies, as well as give us some hope for correction. And that's where I want to end up, hope for correction. We've all heard the wise lesson that you don't know what you have until it's gone. Or you don't properly value something until you don't have it anymore. And how often did we feel that 
these last two years. Wow, I never realized how much I missed. Especially in those months when we were cut off from everyone. We began to keenly feel the loss of so much. But something else was happening. Something else was happening there. The actual nature of our valuing. I bet you felt this. The actual nature of our loving was being revealed. It was being laid bare. It was like a whole societal experiment to show us what we love, show us what we value. Our loves were tested. Their composition was distilled. What is it that we value? What is it that we love? Some people found that the love they were looking for in church and in the kingdom of God was primarily philia, primarily friendship. According to Lewis's theory of love, philia, or friendship, arises when two or more people, he says, see the same truth, or at least care about the same truth. That's what friendship is based on. That's what builds it and shapes it. They, they have this, a moment of recognition. Oh, you too. You too see this, value this. And so the posture becomes side by side. Two friends sharing enthusiasm or delight in something. Not primarily in one another, but in something else. And this togetherness for the sake of the common element binds a group of friends as a circle of those who see this truth. They may enjoy seemingly deep, meaningful connection, meaningful friendship over hunting, over playing cards, over stamp collecting. People do that. And they feel a genuine appreciative love in that belonging. They grow in appreciation for one another as they celebrate and pursue this truth together. Which Lewis says, this, this appreciation is often so great that each member of the circle feels in his secret heart humbled before all the rest. Humbled that I could be with you in this pursuit. So, of course, they delight in being on the inside. That's also the vulnerability of it. They delight in being on the inside, in this circle of wonderful people. They delight in being consulted. Well, some people in the coronavirus crisis found that in the absence of the common interest, the thing pursued, and the opportunity to gather for it, they lost their love. They lost love. If friendship was the love they sought in church, it was the thing they found in church, or feeling that love was the reason that they came to church or were part of a church, then they found themselves suddenly in a bitter spot. Suddenly they felt on the outside. And our imaginations, I know this because I talk to people about it, their imaginations ran wild. I'm on the outside, but the inside is still happening somewhere. No. No. When the joy of friendship is feeling on the intimate inside and there's no inside to be part of, church feels suddenly loveless. And God feels distant. 
when the experience of God is dependent on that feeling of being on the inside? Does God even care? The Christian who identifies love for God with the joyful feeling of philia, friendship, has found that he knew very little of God. That was one of the results. Like a disappointed friend, many of these disappointed Christians who felt on the outside of a, noun, of a non-existent circle have turned the cold shoulder to the disappointing church. Or perhaps they discovered that the inside that they thought existed was different. The, the, the common truth they thought was different than, uh, than their imagination of it. And they felt suddenly on the outside. That has been common enough. But I think more significant from the last two years has been the revelation of eros as the love most desired and expressed in North American Christianity. Eros. That might sound strange. I'm going to unpack that. Anyone from the distant past who might be dropped into today's American culture would immediately recognize decadence, too much, luxury, and eroticism. We're steeped in the erotic, consumed by the erotic, I know that's not even a controversial statement. You know that's true. And we would be foolish to think it hasn't affected church life, assumptions about church, and love for God. So let me unpack this using Lewis's theory. He writes, By eros, I mean, of course, that state which we call being in love, or if you prefer, that kind of love which lovers are in. Now, he carefully and somewhat awkwardly distinguishes this feeling of being in love from the carnal or sexual element, which he calls Venus. So far from the merely sexual, he says, Eros is simply a delighted preoccupation with the beloved, a general unspecified preoccupation with her in her totality. A man in this state really hasn't leisure to think of sex. He's too busy thinking of a person and how awesome, how wonderful this person is. Anyone who's actually been in love knows what he's talking about. Recognize this probably with a chuckling amen. Someone in love, that is someone feeling eros, will compose horrible, rapturous poetry, will make gifts, will constantly daydream, I essentially lost a term of graduate school because of this, uh, being in love. So instead of engaging in a class on T.S. Eliot and W.H. Auden, and instead of carefully reading their poems, I sat there in the class composing rhapsodies on Brooks' eyes. <laughs> so you've either felt this yourself or you've seen it, Consumed by the object of love, the arrow-smitten lover can see no wrong in the beloved. The ancients caught this facet of Eros by uh, depicting Cupid, Eros or Cupid to the Romans, as blindfolded 
in the statues, in the paintings. Eros is blindfolded. Love is blind, we say. Or we remark to our friends, what does she see in him? Right, you've said it. Well, the, she doesn't see. That's the, she doesn't, she's blind. She feels, and what she feels is Eros. And the one who feels Eros wants to sacrifice. So overcome with the delight of the beloved. He or she wants to give himself, wants to give herself to the beloved. As Lewis states, we ought not ignore or attempt to deny the godlike quality. This love really and truly is like love himself. It is, if, it is as if Christ said to us through Eros, thus, just like this, with this prodigality, not counting the cost, you are to love me and the least of my brethren. So hear what I'm saying. Eros is good. It is good. All of the loves come from God. He made us as fit vessels to receive all the love that he is, all of its facets. The four loves all come from him. We are fit to receive that love. We're fit to give it. We're pouring out vessels. We're reflecting vessels. And so Eros, this feeling of being in love, it ought to be part of our Christian experience too. So lest you think I'm just a curmudgeon about this, it ought to be part of our experience of church life. Just, and here's how I think, just as Eros uh, is what predominates in those early stages of human romantic relationship, the fluttery feeling that consumed by the wonder of the beloved, Eros is a large part of young relationship with God. A new convert rightly feels this aspect in his or her love for God. It's fitting. I can clearly remember this elated feeling of love for God, a kind of divine romance. He had pursued me, and I, I was just shocked by it, that the God of the universe would pursue me and make me captive. It's marked by exuberance, rapturous times of worship, getting lost in it. Nothing in the world had ever been this good. So there's often an intense and a naive willingness to die for God. I can remember imagining myself languishing away in a communist prison. I would do this happily. No sacrifice would be too great. A vague but powerful sense of wanting always to feel these feelings of security, of warmth and delight, comfort of this love, wanting it to last forever. And just as people get annoyed with young lovers, people get annoyed with new converts because they have this. But it is part of God's love for the believer. He is, in fact, wonderful. He is, in fact, worthy of our total delight and rapture. 
And when we first discover his goodness, it's right to feel these intense feelings of arrows. It's also right that they are again stirred up the way eros in a romantic relationship is. Unexpectedly, when we see again or we see anew some amazing aspect of God's character, like in a human relationship, we're sometimes struck afresh with the wonder of a spouse and eros pierces with delight. And as all loves flow from God, this part of love ought to return to him too. This part of love is due him, worthy of him. The trouble comes when this love, when the feeling of Eros becomes the single focus of relationship to God. It happens when we refuse to mature, when we refuse to seek and know God in Jesus the King in all that he is, in his lordship. So wonderful were those feelings, praising him, that we want always to feel those and only those feelings. But life comes along with trouble. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus told us, hardship and suffering, discomfort and unhappiness. They seem to ruin everything feeling pain and the weight of our sin because it turns out we still have that. We still live with it. Having to cast ourselves on the kind mercy of God, a sovereign Lord, doesn't always thrill with exhilarating pleasure. Although we're offered the whole of God, the whole of His love, we want to experience just the pleasant feeling of being loved and being in love. So we end up with a, a pinhole experience of God. Or we have this enormous access to his infinite love and we, we want just the pleasant pinhole part. I have no doubt you've seen what this looks like when a church and a whole church culture can commit itself to eros as a single way of loving God and seeking his love. It's a commitment to remaining in the early stages of relationship and what is, it's just so strange of keeping people in that early immature state of relationship. This is what produces endless Jesus is my boyfriend songs. You know those songs. I was recently at a, a college evening event and I was struck. I was bewildered by how visibly excited the students became. Visibly, audibly excited when singing the lyric, when heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss. No comments on the lack of poetry there. But... <laughs> What happened was the passions, the mention of a kiss in a song about God roused the passions. They were hooting and hollering in the midst of the song. I know I'm not saying anything new or remarkable in, in observing this. This is not groundbreaking. But in observing that this expression of eros is what predominates 
as love for God in much of American Christianity. I may be squashing some of your toes. We really should expect this, though. We should expect it. We are culturally susceptible to this reduction of the love of God and the life of the church because we live in an erotic culture. It's, it's, um, it's ironic that a church culture can think of itself as countercultural and yet be bringing this predominant note of our culture into church life as the most predominant way of thinking about love for God. Western culture has steadily rejected other expressions of love, including traditional notions of friendship and family love. And, and we have collapsed love into the single feeling of Eros. And Eros itself, you know, has been invaded by Venus so that even the goodness of Eros has been hollowed out and chipped away by the sexual element, which is unnecessary. It is unnecessary for Eros. So the terrible lie that echoes and echoes around us is that the feelings of love are all simply sexual appetite. If you feel love, it's, it's sexual appetite. And this is seen as a basic human need and a basic human right. Everyone deserves love, it is said. Fair enough, but that is translated as everyone deserves feelings of sexual gratification. You know how that goes. The spiritualized version of this that's imported into the Christian life is less clear-cut, but the equation is similar. Everyone deserves love, indeed. Indeed, everyone is loved by God. So everyone deserves the pleasurable feelings of being in love with God, and this should be our constant experience. Everyone deserves to feel loved by God, and so it becomes the commitment of our church culture to ensure that it happens. For those for whom this perception of the Christian life has dominated, the realities of 2020, 2021, were disenchanting. There was suffering. There was suffering. There was isolation. In the absence of intensive emotional experience, experiences of worship, the feeling of being in love with God faded. Lewis describes this well. The grim joke is that this Eros, whose voice seems to speak from the eternal realm, is not himself necessarily even permanent. He's notoriously the most mortal passing away of our loves. The world rings with the complaints of his fickleness. What is baffling is the combination of this fickleness with its protestations of permanency. The young lover says, I will always feel this. Doesn't take long, does it? These intense feelings of rapture simply can't last. And what a merciful God that they can't last. They weren't designed to last. If I were endlessly writing 
rapturous poetry on Brooke's eyes. Uh, what sort of father would I be? What sort of friend? What sort of pastor? Just constantly dreaming of Brooke's eyes. You can't walk in that swoon forever. With a painfully obvious application to church life, Lewis observes, we have all heard of people who are in love again every few years, each time sincerely convinced that this time it's the real thing. Their wanderings are over. They found their true love and with will themselves be true till death. Of course, that, that could be written of Christians on the search for the perfect church, falling in love with this church, then that church, then that church, truly longing, truly and really longing for the fires of Eros with God again, but stuck in an immature love for God. Well, nothing was so disruptive of this search for endless Eros than the lockdowns, unfed by new experience, but confronted with lots of discomfort. The emotional feelings of love cooled. Wherever the Christian life had been reduced to a matter of positive feelings, there was no room for any negative feelings about other Christians. There was no room for negative feelings about the church. There was no room for negative feelings, even just honest, sincere feelings about how things were going. There was no room for negativity about God. No room for complaints to God. If a person felt upset with how other Christians responded to politics or how other Christians responded to what they felt was common sense, a love based on Eros alone was quick to fade, quickly quenched, because in Eros there's no room for dispute. Dispute spoils it. There's no room for disagreement. There's no room for the reality of sin. That brings us to the level of need. The Christian whose love consists chiefly of eros expectation has been steadily disappointed, then disenchanted with how unattractive other Christians are. The magic is gone. And so the question arose, can I be part of this? Do I even love God? Do I even know God? Can I be part of such a church when I have such negative feelings? And many left church altogether. Well, thus far, I've been diagnosing a problem. To state it succinctly, Western culture has reduced love to eros, and Christians have applied that reduction to Christian life in how we think about love for God and for each other. So what then is the antidote? The antidote is actual Christian love. It isn't so complicated. This is the love uniquely described and shown in the Bible. It's supernatural love divine love, filling our lives and bringing other loves into order 
Not dismissing them, but bringing, bringing them into order. And that love is called agape. The love that brings spiritually dead people to life is what Lewis calls divine gift love, agape, charity. It is, he says, the real beginning of all love, with love as the divine energy. In God, there's no hunger that needs to be filled, only plenteousness that desires to give. And so when this comes into a human person, this divine gift love, he says, is wholly disinterested and desires what is simply best for the beloved. It enables a man to love what is not naturally lovable. Lepers, criminals, enemies, morons, the sulky, the superior, and the sneering. This is still Lewis. Finally, by a high paradox, God enables men to have a gift love towards himself. It's for others and it's towards him. So, of course, we know that this gift love is shown to us primarily by the sacrifice of Jesus. Love on display. It's given then to wicked humans when we accept that sacrifice for us. So as Jesus said, we receive his love, this sacrificial divine gift love, we receive that love by eating that sacrifice, by receiving the sacrifice of Jesus. We receive this love of grace by accepting it, taking it in. Offered to us, we accept his act of love becomes our own love. Becomes a part of us when he sits enthroned in our hearts. He brings it with him. This love that he is, he brings with him when he comes. When he rules in us. This is unique to Christianity. Which we so often forget. In the history of the world, there is nothing that stands out so starkly from other religions as Christ in us, the hope of glory. That means the anointed king, that's what Christ means. It's not his last name. It's his title. The anointed king in us, bringing his divine love and bringing his kingdom into us. Where the king is, there is his kingdom. So the anointed king in us brings something that isn't and couldn't otherwise be there. The kingdom of the heavenlies without the king cannot be in us. And so he brings it. And he brings agape. In the New Testament, there are over 200 mentions of this love as suffusing, as governing the Christian life and community. Jesus and the apostles were making the radical claim that the self-sacrificial love of God, that pouring out love of God, is the Christian way of life. It's the animating power 
But this supernatural love was also to fill and to give life to the other natural loves. Friendship, eros, nomos, which isn't part of Lewis's conception, but it's one of them. And affection. Affection. Here enters Storge. I said we would get there. The affection of family love. Familiar love. Any reader of the New Testament, you see quickly that early church life was conceived as a new family. You came out of one family and into another family. It was conceived as a household of God. It was the favored conception of a local church, a community. Favored by the apostles, favored by the church fathers. So we would expect, of course, that young Christians would be urged on in their storge, in their family love. And in a very basic sense, they are. The, the very notion of household that fills the New Testament with brothers and sisters in the faith. They, they called one another brother and sister. With spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers, there's an understood basis of storge there. Uh, it, it's assumed warm comfort part of the community, acceptance, part of the community, the freedom to be oneself, confident in the goodwill of the family. That's storge. And so, yes, this affection, this family love is assumed in the New Testament, but it is never once used. The word storge does not appear in the New Testament for how Christians should love God, each other, or the world. So despite this constant family language, familial love is never the commended form of love. That belongs to agape. There are a couple of instances of philia, Philadelphia, communicating that there is friendship within the, the family. But the New Testament is clear that the love Christians ought to have, the love we remarkably can have, is agape, if they are to love God and to love each other. Because it is agape that makes Christian family possible. It turns out we're not actually the same blood, and we didn't grow up in the same house. So what we actually need is, that it, Storge is a metaphor, what we actually need is agape. Because even in those seemingly rarefied New Testament times, and I, if your imagination is like mine, I will imagine the New Testament time, the first century, as perfect. They loved each other perfectly. They were so transformed. Turns out, apparently, they needed agape just to put up with each other. That's why they're reminded of it. Let's hear Lewis's description again. It enables a man to love what is not naturally lovable. Lepers, criminals, enemies, morons, the sulky, the superior, and the sneering. And such were many of you, the Apostle Paul might have said to us. The thing about agape, or charity, the thing that's been apparently so absent from the American church is that divine love expects and even anticipates 
failings. I'll say that again. Divine love expects, anticipates failings. God's love is always ready for weakness. It's always already prepared for weakness, for shortcomings, for bearing with. It's prepared to meet human beings. Like, where would any of us be without God's merciful agape towards us, without his charity? Lewis says it well. There is something in each of us that cannot be naturally loved. You might as well ask people to like the taste of rotten bread or the sound of a mechanical drill. We can be forgiven and pitied and loved in spite of it with charity. No other way. And if no one has told you about those qualities in you, we can hang out together and I'll tell you. <laughs> there is in us all not just something unlovable, but there is downright darkness. In all of us was the bent of rebellion against our Creator, hostility towards goodness Himself. Yes, we have all been receiving agape from God again and again. And that is exactly the thing that we have in common if you claim the name of Christ. If you are a Christian, what you have in common with everyone else who claims to be a Christian is having received the agape of God. That's exactly what brings the church into existence. Those who have received it, we know it. He's enabled us to know, and he's enabled us to receive his agape. So if the king has brought his love inside us, that's the love we are to have for each other. It's what makes, it's what makes us Christians in the first place. It's the ground of our mutual belonging to each other, and so we ought to expect that we'll keep living according to it, that living according to agape is what keeps us together. He told us clearly, beloved, and I'm going to give you the Greek there each time so that we'll hear it fresh. Beloved, let us have agape towards one another. For agape is of God. And everyone who has agape has been born of God and knows God. It's how we can know one is a Christian. You have agape. He that has no agape does not know God, for God is agape. That is actually what the word says. So when church is not what we want it to be, it's time for divine love. When other Christians disappoint us, when I disappoint you, and act in ways that embarrass us, oh, can you believe? It's time for agape. When other churches seem to act the fool, whole communities acting the fool, they call forth our charity. God loves them. We also ought to love them with agape. When this, our own local church, if you're not part of this church, think of your own, doesn't meet your expectations and doesn't cooperate with your desires, that should not surprise you. 
That should be expected. We are living in times that are bringing out the worst in us, each of us. And so we are presenting one another with many opportunities to live in the power of divine gift love. You're welcome. I have presented you such opportunities. This is not the time for demanding the familiar comforts of church family, for stoking those comfortable hearth fires of affection. If only, you know, if only it would just be comfortable. If only my brothers and sisters would would act the way brothers and sisters are supposed to act, the way we, we did before. In times like these, Storge has a role. It's the role of reminding us that we've been together. We've been together for a long time. We've been through reliable years together. But every love needs the power of agape to carry through difficult times. So I conclude now with the hope for correction. The first hope is that we would confess. When we truly see the, the goodness of God, when we truly see what his agape is like, confession is the right response. Among many other outcomes, God has used these last two years to lay bare our deficient love, our deficient love. So whether we've been looking to friendship or to fleeting fickle eros or to the comfort of storge to sustain our Christian life, we found that none of these can bear the weight. In fact, they cannot bear the weight of real ugliness. Real ugliness. We have been ugly. Or the real challenge. None of these can bear the weight without the aid of divine gift love, agape. So to the extent that we've been living without it, we've actually been living without God. To the extent that we've actually rejected grace and rejected charity towards others, we've truly been rejecting God. And that's a scary reality. And that calls for confession. The hope we have secure is that, this is another wonderful reality that is agape. The hope that we have secure is that God has already committed himself to us through agape. In fact, he was prepared for all the ugliness we've offered back up to him and all the ugliness we've offered to each other. He's prepared for that. He knew it. And his commitment to love us remains. And he is the anchor of our souls. In truth, in truth, he is in us as king, bringing a kingdom of charity into us inviting us to submit to that charity, to join him in it. And so our correction then is to know this God, to know him and to know that love, and to join him in it. Lewis draws to a close with this. Is it the whole, the whole four loves, 
moves here. Is it easy to love God? Asks an old author. It is easy for those who do it. I hope you'll ponder that. Is it easy to love God? It is easy for those who do it. God can awaken man towards himself a supernatural, appreciative love. This is of all gifts the most to be desired to love God. It's the gift most to be desired here, not in our natural loves, not even in ethics, lies the true center of all human and angelic life. With this, all things are possible. And he's given us that love. We have it. The love for God that desires above all to know him as he is. I'll say that again. The love for God that desires above all to know him just as he is. This is what sets the rest of life in order and all the other loves all, and all the other pains and all the other pleasures and all of our sufferings. To love him as he is sets life in order. Amen. That's the end. <laughs>